Welcome, welcome to part two. Let's get back to it. This is the outlet. Part two of the Democratic debate, the first night, and they still ain't talking about no reparations. Welcome back, everyone, to the first Democratic presidential debate from the Arts Center in Miami. And as we continue the questioning, time to get more members of our team in the mix. So right now, let's turn it over to Chuck Todd and Rachel Maddow. Take it away. Twenty candidates qualified for this first Democratic debate. We're going to hear from ten tonight, ten more tomorrow. The breakdown for each night was selected at random. Now the candidates will have 60 seconds to answer, 30 seconds for a follow-up if necessary, and we will be ruthless if necessary. Yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. By the way, hi Rachel. Hi Chuck. How are you doing? Good. And we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about guns and climate here up top. A whole lot more in this hour, obviously because of the size of the field. Not every person will be able to weigh in on everything, but over the course of this next hour, we will hear from everyone. I promise everybody. And to begin with, we're going to go with guns. And Senator, I want to start with you. We are less than 50 miles from Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed in a school shooting last year, and where there has been significant activism on gun violence ever since. Many of you are calling for a restoration of an assault weapons ban, but even if implemented, there will still be hundreds of millions of guns in this country. Should there be a role for the federal government? Uh, everybody's mics are on. I, I think we have a... I heard that too. That's okay. I think we had a little mic issue in the back. Control room, we've got... We have the... I think we heard... Yeah, we have the audience audio. All right. So the question is simply this. We're, taught, we're from... I apologize you guys didn't get to hear this, uh, the first part of the question. Obviously, we're not far from Parkland, Florida. Uh, gun activism has become uh, a big part of high school life up yeah. there in Broward County. Many they talk about everything except for reparations. Come on, Democrats. How you expect to get our vote? Or maybe y'all don't want our votes. That's probably what it is, right? I understand. I understand. Many of you are calling for tighter gun restrictions. Some of you are calling for the restoration of the assault weapons ban. 
But even if it's put in place, there's still going to be perhaps hundreds of millions of guns still on the streets. Is there a role for the federal government in order to play in order to get these guns off the streets? <laughs> we are, What's happening? We are hearing our colleagues' audio. I, if the control room could turn off the mics. Yeah, if the if the control room could turn off the mics of our previous moderators, we will. You know, we prepared for yes. everything. Guess what, guys? We, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to get this technical uh, situation fixed. We will be right back. Technical uh, difficulties fixed. Never right? say right. that. Never say never. <laughs> but we will uh, we will march forward here, and I will lean forward here a little bit. Senator Warren, uh, we're going to get to the uh, gun question here. Parkland, Florida, it's just north of here in Broward County. As you know, it has created a lot of teenage activism uh, on the gun issue. Uh, it has inspired a lot of you to come out with more robust plans to deal with guns, including assault weapons ban. But even if you're able to implement that, what do you do about the hundreds of millions of guns already out there, and does the federal government have to play a role in dealing with it? So, um, in this period of time that I've been running for president, I've had more than 100 town halls. I've taken more than 2,000 unfiltered questions. And the single hardest question I've gotten, I got one from a little boy and I got one from a little girl, and that is to say, when you're president, how are you going to keep us safe? That's our responsibility as adults. Seven children will die today from gun violence, children and teenagers. And they won't just die in mass shootings. They'll die on sidewalks, they'll die in playgrounds, they'll die in people's backyards. Gun violence is a national health emergency in this country, and we need to treat it like that. Sure, sure, yes, yes. There is a lot of mass shootings going on. And it's usually a white person, usually, right? Usually a white guy went crazy berserks and just, just let loose on everybody. But, yeah, you know. What about reparations? That's what I'm waiting for y'all to get to. So what can we do? We can do the things that are sensible. We can do the universal background checks. We can ban the weapons of war. But we can also double down on the research and find out what really works, where it is that we can make the differences at the margins that will keep our children safe. We need to treat okay. this like the Thank virus you, that's killing our children. Uh, you didn't address, do you, do you think the federal government needs to go and figure out a way to get the guns that so are already out there? What I think we need to do Very is quickly. we need to treat it like a serious research problem, which we have not done. Okay. You know, guns in the hands of a collector who's had them for decades, who's never fired them, who takes safety right. seriously, that's very different from guns that are sold and turned over quickly. We can't treat this as an across-the-board problem. We have to treat it like a public health emergency. Senate. That means bring data to bear, okay. and it means make real change in this country, Thank you, whether Senator. it's politically popular or not. Senator Booker, you have a program. We need to fight for our children. Senator Booker, 
You have a federal government buyback program uh, in your plan. How is that going to work? Well, first of all, I want to say my colleague and I both have been hearing this on the campaign trail. But what's even worse is I hear gunshots in my neighborhood. I think I'm the only one, I hope I'm the only one on this panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood just last week. Someone I knew, Shahad Smith, was killed with an assault rifle at the top of my block last year. For millions of Americans, this is not a policy issue. This is an urgency. And for those who have not been directly affected, they're tired of living in a country where their kids go to school to learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and how to deal with an active shooter in their school. This is something that I'm tired of, and I'm tired of hearing people, all they have to offer is thoughts and prayers. In my faith, people say faith without works is dead. So we will find a way. But the reason we have a problem right now is we've let the, the corporate gun lobby frame this debate. It is time that we have bold actions and a bold agenda. I will get that done as President of the United States because this is not about policy. This is personal. Thank you, Senator Booker. Secretary Castro, I'd like uh-huh, Mr. Booker, or Senator Booker. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I still want to hear more about reparations, people. Talk to you about something that Senator Booker just mentioned there, the idea of active shooter drills in schools. The school shootings seem like an almost every day or every week occurrence now. They don't make a complete news cycle anymore, no matter the death toll. As parents are so afraid as their kids go off school that their kids will be caught up in something like this, Next to nothing has changed in federal law that might affect the prevalence of school shootings. Is this a problem that is going to continue to get worse over our lifetimes? Or is there something that you would do as president that you really think would turn it around? Yeah, Rachel, I, uh, I'm the dad of a 10-year-old girl, Karina, who's here tonight. And the worst thing is knowing that your child might be worried about what could happen at school, a place that's supposed to be safe, the answer to your question is no, we don't have to accept that. And I believe that on January 20th, 2021, at 12.01 p.m., we're going to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate. And the activists of Parkland, folks from Moms Demand, who have risen up, risen up across the United States and inspired so many people, you know, we may not have seen yet legislative action, but we're getting closer. The House took a vote. In the Senate, the question often is if, it's, if the decision is between 60 votes, a filibuster, or passing common sense gun reform, I'm going to choose common sense gun reform. So I believe that we're going to be able to get that done in 2021. Rachel, Secretary Cassidy, thank you. Rachel, I have something, I have something to add to this uh, briefly. We'll give you, you, you what, 30 seconds for follow-up on that question, on that answer from Secretary Castro, Congressman Ryan. You're talking about in the schools. These kids are traumatized. I support all the gun reforms here. We need to start dealing with the trauma that our kids have. We need trauma-based care in, in every school. We need social and emotional learning in every school. 90% of the shooters who do school shootings come from the school they're in, and 73% of them feel shamed, traumatized, or bullied. We need to make sure that these kids feel connected to the school. That means a mental health counselor in every yeah. single school in the United States. We need to start playing offense. If our kids are so traumatized that they're getting a gun and going into our schools, we're doing something wrong, too, and we need reform around trauma-based care. Congressman O'Rourke, you're a Texan who's campaigned, you campaigned all over the state in 2018 in the most conservative parts there. 
What do you tell a gun owner who may agree with you on everything else, okay, but says, you know what, the Democrats, if I vote for them in there, they're going to take my gun away, and even though I agree with you on all these other issues, I, how do you have that conversation? Here's how we had that conversation in Texas. I shared with them what I learned from those students who survived the Santa Fe High School shooting. A young student named Bree, uh, her friend Marcel, who survived another shooting, uh, the mother of a victim who lost her life, Rhonda Hart. They talked about universal background checks, where you close every loophole. We know that they save lives. Talked about ending the sales of assault weapons into our communities. The weapons of war were designed to kill people as effectively and as efficiently as possible. They should belong on the battlefield. In yes, they are. That's why the government dropped them off in black neighborhoods, right? <laughs> Not in our communities. Red flag laws, so that if someone poses a danger to themselves or to someone else, they're stopped before it's too late. And what I found in each one of those 254 counts is that Democrats and independents and Republicans, gun owners and non-gun owners alike, agreed. But this effort must be led by the young people that you referenced at the beginning of this issue. Those students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas led the charge here in Florida, and they've been able to change those laws. They're making our democracy work, ensuring that our values and our interests and our priorities are reflected in the laws that we pass. Thank you, thank you, Congressman O'Rourke. Hang on. Uh, let, me, let me give 30 seconds. Um, Senator Klobuchar, the Iron Range, I'm curious. Gun confiscation, right? If the government is buying back, how do you how do you not have that conversation? Well, that's not confiscation. You right. would give them the offer to buy back their gun. But I'll say this: I look at these proposals and I say, um, does this hurt my uncle Dick and his deer stand? Coming from a proud hunting and fishing state, these proposals don't do that. When I was a prosecutor, I supported the assault weapon ban. When I was in the Senate, I saw those moms from Sandy Hook come and try to advocate for change, and we all failed. And then, now, these Parkland kids from Florida, they started a literally a national shift. You know why? It's just like with gay marriage. When kids talk to their parents and their grandparents, they say, I don't understand why we can't put these sensible things in place. They listen. And All if right. we get bested by Senator, a bunch of 17-year-olds, it's the best thing Senator, that ever happened. Senator, thank you. Trust Senator, thank you. Senator, thank you. Senator, let me go to you on, on another we matter, actually. Senator Mitch McConnell says that his most consequential achievement as Senate Majority Leader was preventing President Obama from filling a Supreme Court seat. Having served with Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, do you... Where are the reparations talk? Come on. Y'all ain't gonna bring it up in this debate? I know you ain't, but... ...you believe they would confirm your court nominees. I'm gonna use 20 of my seconds just to say there's one thing we... And they want us to vote for them don't all agree with when it comes to guns. And I think it's common sense and over 70% of Americans agree with me. If you need a license to drive a car, you should need a license to buy and own a firearm. And not everybody in this field agrees with that, but in states like Connecticut that did that, they saw 40% drops in gun violence and 15% drops in suicides. We need to start having bold agendas on guns. When it comes to the Supreme Court, very clearly, we, I agree with my friend, uh, Secretary Castro, we are going to get to 50 votes in the Senate. This is a team sport. Whoever is our nominee needs to campaign in places like South Carolina, because we can elect Jamie Harrison. They need to campaign in places like Iowa, because we can win a Senate seat there. This is about getting us back to having 50 votes in the Senate and more, so that we can not only balance the Supreme
Supreme Court, but start to pass an aggressive agenda that frankly isn't so aggressive because most of America agrees with the policy objectives of our party. Mayor de Blasio, I want to get to Congressman Delaney, you'll have some time in a moment on this issue. Congressman Delaney, I'll give you some time in a moment. Mayor de Blasio, as an executive in the largest city in this country, you are used to saying what you want to have happen and having it happen. If you nominate a Supreme Court nominee as President of the United States and Mitch McConnell is still Senate Majority Leader, what makes you believe that he would allow you to make a nominee? Rachel, I am Chief Executive of the nation's largest city, and I also want to just say something quick on the gun issue and come to your question. Uh, look, I run the largest police force in America, too, and if we're going to stop these shootings, we're going to get these guns off the street, we have to have a very different relationship between our police and our community. I also want to say there's something that sets me apart from all my colleagues running in this race, and that is for the last 21 years I've been raising a black son in America. And I have had to have very, very serious talks with my son Dante about how to protect himself on the streets of our city and all over this country, including how to deal with the fact that he has to take special caution because there have been too many tragedies between our young men and our police, too, as we saw recently in Indiana. So we need to have a different conversation in this country about guns, but also a different conversation about policing that brings police and community together. We've done that in New York City, and we've driven down crime while we've done it. But to your question about Mitch McConnell, there's a political solution that we have to come to grips with. If the Democratic Party would stop acting like the party of the elites and be the party of working people again and go into states, including red states, to convince people we're on their side, we can put pressure on their senators to actually have to vote for the nominees that are put that's, forward. That's Decent jurists deserve that's that right. Thank you, Mayor de Blasio. Senator Warren, I'm going to get you. I will get you 30 seconds. I promise. Let me get, let me get this question. We're trying. I know you guys, we got other issues we're trying to get to, including a big one coming up in a minute. But Senator Warren. And I hope one of them issues is reparations. I want to continue on the Mitch McConnell thing because you have a lot of ambitious plans. You have a plan for that. Okay. We talked about the Supreme Court. Do you have a plan to deal with Mitch McConnell if you don't beat him in the Senate, if he's still sitting there as the Senate Majority Leader? It's very plausible you be elected president with a Republican Senate. Do you have a plan to deal with Mitch McConnell? I did. We are a democracy, and the way a democracy is supposed to work is the will of the people matters. Now, we for far too long have had a Congress in Washington that has just completely dismissed what people care about across this country. They have made this country work much better for those who can make giant contributions, made it work better for those who hire armies of lobbyists and lawyers, and not made it work for the people. Well, here's how I see this happening. Number one, sure, I want to see us get a Democratic majority in the Senate. But short of a Democratic majority in the Senate, you better understand, the fight still goes on. It starts in the White House, and it means that everybody we energize in 2020 stays on the front lines come January 2021. We have to push from the outside, have leadership from the inside, okay. and make this Congress reflect the will I'm gonna of get the to, people. I'm going to get a couple of you in here. I'm going to get you a couple in here. 30 seconds. Congressman Delaney, you, you seem to believe you can do everything in a bipartisan manner. Um, Mitch McConnell doesn't operate that way. He operates differently. Why do you think he is going to conform to your style? 
I think we, we need to get things done. That's why I believe we need to operate in a bipartisan manner. Listen, I'll sign into law pills that come to the White House that are passed on a, on a party-line basis, absolutely. But all the big transformative things we've ever done in this country's history have happened when huge majorities of the American people get behind them, which is why we need real solutions, not impossible promises. We need to put forth ideas that work, whether it's on health care, creating universal health care so that every American gets health care, but not running on making private insurance illegal. The gun issue is related, the gun safety issue is related because I can't tell you how many times I've been with folks in Western Maryland and they've said to me, you know, Democrats don't do anything for us, Republicans don't do anything for us. You fight all the time, so they vote on that single issue. Okay, if we become the party of getting things done for the American people Senator with real solutions, not impossible promises, we'll be able to get 30, all these I promise two thirties here, I'm going to take Senator Booker, 30 seconds. Uh, you, how do you deal with, with Mitch McConnell? You've been in the Senate. You can't get bills on the floor right now with Mitch McConnell. Presidents can't do it. Is President Booker going to get his bills on the floor with Senator McConnell? You know, when I got to the United States Senate, going back to what de Blasio said, as an African-American man in an African-American dominated community, I knew one of the biggest issues was criminal justice reform. From police accountability to dealing with the fact that we have a nation that has more African-Americans under criminal supervision than all the slaves in 1850. And when I got to the Senate, people told me we could not get a comprehensive criminal justice reform bill done. As my colleagues in the Senate know, I fought on that bill from the day I got to the Senate, built coalitions across the aisle, and today we passed the First Step Act. It's not as far as I want to go, but thousands of people will be liberated. I have gotten, I've taken on tough problems people said we cannot achieve, and I've been able to get things accomplished. Thank you, Senator Booker. Rachel's got the next question. We are going to make it, we are going, hold on, Governor, you're going to be happy with where we go. Governor Inslee, Just this next question is to you. You got me? You got me? You have staked your candidacy on the issue of climate change. It is first, second, and third priority for you. You said it's all the issues. Let's get specific. We're here in Miami, which is already experiencing serious flooding on sunny days as a result of sea level rise. Parts of Miami Beach and the Keys could be underwater in our lifetimes. Does your plan save Miami? Yeah, first by taking away the filibuster from Mitch McConnell to start with. We have to do that. Look at it, look at it. We are the first generation to feel the sting of climate change, and we are the last that can do something about it. Our towns are burning, our fields are flooding, Miami is, is inundated. And we have to understand, this is a climate crisis, an emergency, and it is our last chance in the administration next one to do something about it. And we need to do what I've done in my state. We've passed a 100% clean electrical grid bill. We now have a vision statement, and my plan has been called the gold standard of putting people to work. But the most important thing on this, and the biggest decision for the American public is, who's gonna make this the first priority? And I am the candidate and the only one who's saying this has to be the top priority of the United States, the organizing principle to mobilize the United States so that we can do what we've always done, lead the world and invent the future and put 8 million people to work. Governor, That's what we're going to do. Congressman O'Rourke, you also put out a big climate change uh, plan from your campaign. You want some big changes in a pretty short period of time, including switching to renewable energy, pushing to replace gas-powered cars in favor of electric ones. What's your message to a voter who supports the overall goal of what you're trying to do, 
but suddenly feels as if government's telling them how to live and ordering them how to live. What is that balance like? I think you've got to bring everybody in to the decisions and the solutions to the challenges that we face. That's why we're, we're traveling everywhere, listening to everyone. We were in uh, Pacific Junction, a town that had never meaningly flooded before, just up against the Missouri River in Iowa. And every home in that community had flooded. Um, there were farms just outside of Pacific Junction that were effectively lakes. Those farmers already underwater in debt. Um, their markets closed to them by a trade war under this administration. And now they don't know what to do. We in our administration are going to fund resiliency in those communities, in Miami, in Houston, Texas, those places that are on the front lines of climate change today. We're going to mobilize $5 trillion in this economy over the next 10 years. We're going to free ourselves from a dependence on fossil fuels, and we're going to put farmers and ranchers in the driver's seat, renewable and sustainable agriculture to make sure that we capture more carbon out of the air and keep more of it in the soil paying farmers for the environmental services that they want to provide. If all of us does all that we can, then we're going to be able to keep this planet from warming another two degrees Celsius and ensure that we match what this country can do and live up to our promise and our potential. 30 seconds, uh, Secretary Castro. Uh, does who pays for the mi mitigation to, to climate, whether it's building seawalls, for people that are perhaps living in places... These guys full of it that they shouldn't be living. Is this a federal government issue that needs to do that? Do they have to move these people? What do you do about that where, where maybe they're, they're building a house someplace that isn't safe? Who pays to build that house? And how much should the government be bailing them out? Well, I don't think that that represents the vast majority of the issue. In fact, you know, my first visit after I uh, announced my candidacy wasn't to Iowa or New Hampshire. It was to San Juan, Puerto Rico. <laughs> Because people should know that if I'm elected president, everybody will count. And, you know, I'm one of the few candidates in this race with executive experience, with a track record of getting things done when I was... Did he say everybody would count? I love how they um, pin, always pin everybody in it, but um, black people are in dire need, so I'm going to need y'all to come help us out with reparations. That's all I'm saying. Can we get our reparations? Then you can help everybody else out, you know? mayor of San Antonio, we moved our local public utility, we began to shift it from coal-fired plants to solar and other renewables, and also created more than 800 jobs doing that. And when I was HUD secretary, we worked on the National Disaster Resilience Competition mm -hmm. to invest in communities that were trying to rebuild from natural disasters in a sustainable way. Okay. That's the way that we're going to help make sure that we're all safer in the years to come and that we combat climate change. Thank and if you. I'm elected president, the okay. first thing that I would do, right. like Senator Klobuchar also you, said, is sign an executive order recommitting us to the Paris Climate Accord so that we Thank need you, to get Congressman Ryan, I got, a, I got a full question for you here, which is simply this. You're, um, there are a lot of the climate plans include pricing carbon, taxing carbon in some way. This type of proposal has been tried in a few places, whether it's Washington State where voters voted it down. You've had the yellow vest movement. We had in Australia one party get rejected out of fear of the cost of climate change sort of being put on the backs of the consumer. If pricing carbon is just politically impossible, how do we pay? for climate mitigation? Well, there's a variety of different ways to pay. We talk about different ways of, of raising revenue, and I think we've got to build our way out of this and grow our way out of this. But let me just talk real quick to the previous question about real politics. We could talk about climate, we could talk about guns, we could talk about all of these issues that we all care about. 
We have a perception problem with the Democratic Party. We are not connecting to the working class people. You really do have a perception problem. I agree with that. And it's not just about y'all are elites, right? It's that you're not too much different from the Republicans. When it comes, I'm talking about from the perspective of the black community, though. Y'all are not too much different. I mean, I could go back down the line of like past presidents and stuff that has been done, right? And man, it don't look good. I mean, the criminal was that criminal bill that Bill Clinton passed, crime bill of what is it, 1994? I think. Uh, I think I got that right. Um, and then what else? I mean, it's like it's like the Democratic Party is in love with white men. I've noticed too. I mean, I just noticed a lot of stuff. All of the black women that have been, well, I'm going to say women of color, since some of them don't like to be called black women, um, being picked to the forefront, right? You got Alexandria. I know she's Puerto Rican, but Puerto Rican is basically black people from the islands, right? She looks like a light-skinned black person, right? But she has her white man. I mean, seems like all the women have white men. Like, what is that about? Camilla Harris got a white man. Why is everybody? Why is all the women of color got white men? I want to know that. What's what's going on in the Democratic Party? What are y'all trying to say? And then the black man is always being attacked. What is that about? I need to know. But you want my vote? Yes, the Democratic Party has a perception problem. But I'm gonna let this keep going though. Let's keep going. In the very states that I represent in Ohio, in the industrial Midwest, we've lost all connection. That We have got to change the center of gravity of the Democratic Party from being coastal and elital, elitist and Ivy League, which is the perception, to somebody from the forgotten communities that have been left behind for the last 30 years, to get those workers back on our side so we can say we're going to build electric vehicles, we're going to build solar panels. But if you want to beat Mitch McConnell, this better be a working class party if you want to go into Kentucky and take his rear end out. And if you want to take Lindsey Graham out, you got to have a blue collar party that can go into the textile communities in South Carolina. Thank so all I'm, all I'm saying here, Thank you, Congressman all I'm saying here, Thank you, Congressman so all I'm saying is here, if we don't address that fundamental problem with our connection to workers, white, black, brown, gay, straight, working class people, you, none of this is going to get done, Chuck. Chuck Thank you very much. I want to, we're going to we're going to keep moving. Congressman Delaney, I'm going to get to you. This is I introduced the only bipartisan carbon tax bill in Congress. All right. 30 so seconds really go. All the economists agree that a carbon pricing mechanism works. You just have to do it right. You can't put a price on carbon, raise energy prices, and not give the money back to the American people. My proposal, okay. which is put a price on carbon, give a dividend back to the American people. It goes out one pocket, back in the other. Thank you, Congress. I can get that passed my first year as president with a coalition of every Democrat in the Congress and the Republicans who live in coastal states. Thank you, Republicans in Florida, you. they actually care about this okay. issue. Uh, this has got to be our way forward if we're actually serious thank about you. this issue. Congresswoman Gabbard, we're going to move here. One of the first things you did after launching your campaign was to issue an apology to the LGBTQ community about your past stances and statements on gay rights. After the Trump administration's rollbacks of civil rights protections for many in that community, why should voters in that community or voters that care about this issue in general trust you now? 
Well, let me say that there is no one in our government at any level who has the right to tell any American who they should be allowed to love or who they should be allowed to marry. My record in Congress for over six years shows my commitment to fighting for LGBTQ equality. I serve on the Equality Caucus and recently voted for passage of the Equality Act. Uh, maybe many people in this country can relate to the fact that I grew up in a socially conservative home, held views when I was very young that I no longer hold today. Uh, I've served with LGBTQ service members, both in training and deployed downrange. I know that they would give their life for me and I would give my life for them. It is this commitment that I'll carry through as President of the United States, recognizing that there are still people who are facing discrimination in the workplace, still people who are unable to find a home for their families. It is this kind of discrimination that we need to address. But it's not Thank enough. It's Thank not you. Enough. If I can add to this, it's, it's very important. 30 seconds. It's not enough. Look, civil rights is some place to begin, but in the African-American civil rights community, another place to focus on was to stop the lynching of African-Americans. We do not talk enough about trans Americans, especially African American trans Americans, and the incredibly high rates of murder right now. We don't talk enough about how many children, about 30% of LGBTQ kids, who do not go to school because of fear. It's not enough just to be on the Equality Act. I'm an original co-sponsor. We need to have a president that will fight to protect LGBTQ Americans every single day from violence. Thank you, Senator. LGBT Americans. Um, I'm guessing the topic was on it. I missed some of that, but I guess he's talking about um, LGBT uh, community, some type of topic on there, and he's talking about protecting them. But what about black people? I'm saying, uh, why do we always have these black people talking about protecting uh, the, the gay people, you know, the gay community over the black community? But I know y'all always like to to give that uh, the perspective of you're going to protect everybody, but it doesn't seem that way to a lot of the black community, right? It always seems like we're being overlooked. So Senator Booker and the rest of the Democratic Party, we're going to need more from y'all. We're going to need reparations. We're going to need a lot from y'all, right? Because we're... Right now, they're already talking about we're going to be the, what, the permanent underclass by 2053. Our wealth supposed to drop to zero. I mean, Senator Booker, I'm going to need y'all to pass reparations. That's all to it, man. That is all to it. On the issue of civil rights, for decades, um, on the issue of civil rights and demographics, honestly, and politics, for decades the Democratic Party has counted on African-American voter turnout as step one to winning elections on a national level. Democrats are counting on the Latino community now and in the future in the same way. What have you done for black and Latino voters that should enthuse them about going to the polls for you if you're your party's nominee? My life and my career and my work in the Senate has been about economic opportunity. And to me, this means better childcare, 
uh, for everyone in this country. And when you want to have an economy that works, you need to have retirement that works. You need to have public schools that work. And you also need to make sure that, that those communities are able to get those jobs of the future, the STEM jobs. In fact, Donald Trump, one of the first bills that he signed, of the 34 he signed where I was the lead Democrat, okay, that's a first up here, um, uh, was one that was about that, making sure minority community members um, could share in those jobs. So to me, uh, this is about a few things. It's about an African-American woman that goes to a hospital in New Orleans, says her hands are swollen and then doctor ignores her and her baby dies. It's about uh, the fact that African-American women make 61 cents for every dollar a white man makes. So in short, we need to, one, and I will do this in my first 100 days as president, we will work to make sure everyone can vote at this table. Everyone can vote in this country. And we will also go to the next step of criminal justice reform. Senator Booker and I worked on that first step act, but we should go to the second step act, uh, which is to help all our communities across. Senator, the thank you very much. 30 second follow-up to you. Uh, Secretary Castro, this is a 70% Latino city here in Miami. You are the only Latino Democrat who is running this year in the presidential race. Is that enough? of an answer, what Senator Klobuchar is describing there, an economic justice agenda, is that enough to mobilize Latino voters to stand with the Democratic Party in a big way? Uh, well, I also think that we have to recognize racial and social justice. And, you know, I was in Charleston not too long ago, and I remembered that uh, Dylan Roof went to the Mother Emanuel AME Church, and he murdered nine people who were worshiping, and then he was apprehended by police without incident. Well, but what about Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and Laquan McDonald and Sandra Bland and Pamela Turner and Antonio Arce. I'm proud that I'm the only candidate so far that has put forward legislation that would reform our policing system in America and make sure that no matter what the color of your skin is, that you're treated the same, including Latinos who are mistreated too oftentimes by police. Secretary Castro, thank you. Uh, let me go over to Lester Holt, who's got a question, I believe, a viewer question. I'm over here, Chuck. Thanks. We right. ask uh, voters from across the country to submit their questions to the candidates. Let me read one now. This comes from John in New York, who submitted this question. He asks, does the United States have a responsibility to protect in the case of genocide or crimes against humanity? Do we have a responsibility to intervene, to protect people threatened by their governments, even when atrocities do not affect American core interests? I'd like to direct that question to Congressman O'Rourke. John, I appreciate the, the question. The answer is yes, but that action should always be undertaken with allies and partners and friends. When the United States presents a united front, we have a much better chance of achieving our foreign policy aims and preventing the kind of genocide to which you refer, the kind of genocide that we saw in Rwanda, the kind of genocide we want to stop going forward. But unfortunately, under this administration, President Trump has alienated our allies and our friends and our alliances. He's diminished our standing in the world and he's made us weaker as a country, less able to confront challenges, whether it's Iran or North Korea or Vladimir Putin in Russia, who attacked and invaded our democracy in 2016 and who President Trump has offered another invitation to do the same. He's embraced strongmen and dictators at the expense of the great democracies. 
As president, I will make sure that we live our values in our foreign policy. I will ensure that we strengthen those alliances and partnerships and friendships and meet any challenge that we face together. That makes America stronger. What about the War Powers Act? What about the War Powers Act being a part of that equation with deep respect to the congressman? Look, we've learned painful lessons as Americans that we've gone to war without congressional authorization. Look, this is very personal for me. I know the cost of war. My dad served in the Pacific in World War II in the U.S. Army. Battle of Okinawa had half his leg blown off, and he came home with scars, both physical and emotional, and he did not recover. He spiraled downward, and he ultimately took his own life. And that battle didn't kill him, but that war did. And look, even in the humanitarian crisis, and I think we should be ready, Congressman, to intervene. God forbid there is a genocide, but not without congressional approval. Democrats and Republicans, both in the Congress, have not challenged presidents. I need to hear some about reparations. And have let them get away with running the military without the congressional approval. We learned a lesson in Vietnam we seem to have forgotten. And the decisions have to be made by the United States Congress. I want to pick on this point, and I want to put this to Congressman Ryan. Today, the Taliban claimed responsibility for killing two American service members in Afghanistan. Uh, leaders as disparate as President Obama and President Trump have both said that they want to end U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, but it isn't over for America. Why isn't it over? Why can't presidents of very different parties and very different temperaments get us out of there? And how could you? I appreciate that question. So I've, I've been in Congress 17 years. And 12 of those years, I've sat on the Armed Services Committee, either the Defense Appropriations Committee or the Armed Services Committee. And the lesson that I've learned over the years is that you have to stay engaged in these situations. Nobody likes it. It's long. It's tedious. But right now we have, so I would say we must be engaged in this. We must have our State Department engaged. We must have our military engaged to the, to the extent they need to be. But the reality of it is this president doesn't even have people appointed in the State Department to deal with these things. Whether we're talking about Central America, whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about Afghanistan, we've got to be completely engaged. And here's why. Because these flare-ups distract us from the real problems in the country. If we're if getting a drone shot down for $130 million because the president is distracted, that's $130 million that we could be spending in places like Youngstown, Ohio, or Flint, Michigan, or, re or rebuilding, or rebuilding. I'm going to give you 30 seconds, actually, to is jump off what he what said. He will, described engagement that what you as the will tell the parents of those two soldiers who were just killed in Afghanistan? Well, we just have to be engaged. As a soldier, I will tell you, that answer is unacceptable. We have to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. We are in a place in Afghanistan where we have lost so many lives. We've spent so much money, money that's coming out of every one of our pockets, money that should be going into communities here at home, meeting the needs of the people here at home. We are no better off in Afghanistan today than we were when this war began. This is why it's so important to have a president and commander-in-chief who knows the cost of war and who's ready to do the job on day one. I am ready to do that job when I walk into the Oval Office. Thank you very much. Listen, I'm going to go down the line. I'm going to go down the line. I'm going to go down the line here. Well, you know what? You felt, you felt like she was responding. You get 30 seconds. Go. Fair enough. I appreciate that. I hear what you're saying. I 
would just say, I don't want to be. I don't want to be engaged. I wish we were spending all this money in places that I've represented that have been completely forgotten, and we were rebuilding. But the reality of it is, if the United States isn't engaged, the Taliban will grow, and they will have bigger, bolder terrorist acts. We have got to have some present there. As, the the as Taliban was around. there long before we came in. They yeah, and they were long yeah, before we exactly. Well, we cannot keep U.S. And troops deployed to Afghanistan, thinking that we're going to somehow squash this Taliban I that has say, been there. That I didn't every say other squash them. I didn't say squash them. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have didn't attack us on 9/11. Al Qaeda did. Well, I understand. Al Qaeda attacked us on 9/11. I understand. That's why. I and so I many other people joined the military to go I after Al-Qaida, not the Taliban. The Taliban, the Taliban up was protecting those people who were plotting against us. All I'm saying is, if we want to go in to elections and we want to say that we got to withdraw from the world, that's what President Trump is saying. We okay. can't. I would love you know for us to. who's protecting Al-Qaida right now I want to go Saudi down, Arabia? I want to go down the line here, finish up foreign policy. It's a simple question. What is our? What is the biggest threat to... What is, who is the geopolitical threat to the United States? Just give me a one-word answer, Congressman Delaney. <clears throat> Could you repeat the question? Greatest sir? geopolitical threat to the United States right now, Congressman Delaney. Well, the biggest uh, geopolitical challenge is China, but the okay. biggest geopolitical threat yes. remains nuclear weapons. Okay. Right? So those are, di you know, those are different you. questions. Totally get it. Go ahead, Governor Inslee. Hey, I still need to hear reparations, people. What is going on? They are completely avoiding the reparation topic. The biggest threat to the United States it. is Donald Trump. And there's no question. Uh, the greatest... greatest geopolitical threat. The greatest threat that we face is the fact that we are at a greater risk of nuclear war today than ever before in history. Congre Congre uh, Senator Two Clubs. threats, economic threat, China, but our, our major threat right now is what's going on in the Mideast with Iran if we don't get okay. our Try to keep it at one. Slimmer, slimmer than what we've been going here. One or two our, words. Our existential threat is climate change. We have to confront it before it's too late. Senator Warner. Climate change. Yeah. Senator Booker. Nuclear proliferation and climate change. Secretary uh, Castro. Uh, China and climate change. Yeah, Congressman Ryan. China, without a question, they're wiping us around the world economically. Yeah. Uh, and Mr. Mayor. Russia, because they're trying to undermine our democracy, and they've been doing a pretty damn good job of it, and we need to stop them. All right. Well, thank you for uh, that wide variety of answers, and, and I mean that. No, I mean that in a, that's what this debate is about. This is the best part uh, of, of a debate like this. Um, Congressman O'Rourke. Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report outlines multiple instances of potential criminal behavior by President Trump. House Speaker Pelosi has publicly and privately resisted any move toward impeachment in the House. If the House chooses not to impeach, as President, would you do anything to address the potential crimes that were outlined in Mr. Mueller's report? Yes, and I'll tell you why. How, by the way, if the answer is yes. One of the most powerful pieces of art in the United States Capitol is the Trumbull painting of General George Washington resigning his commission to the Continental Congress at the height of his power, submitting to the rule of law and the will of people. That has withstood the test of time for the last 243 years. If we set another precedent now that a candidate who invited the participation of a foreign power, a president who sought to obstruct the investigation 
into the invasion of our democracy. If we allow him to get away with this with complete impunity, then we will have set a new standard, and that is that some people, because of the position of power and public trust that they hold, are above the law. And we cannot allow that to stand. So we must begin impeachment now so that we have the facts and the truth and we follow them as far as they go and as high up as they reach and we save this democracy. And if we've not been able to do that in this year or the year that follows, and under my administration, our Department of Justice will pursue these facts and ensure that there are, account there are consequences, there is accountability, and there is justice. It's the only way that we save this country. Thank you, Congressman O'Rourke. Congressman Delaney. Because of the accountability issues that Congressman O'Rourke was just describing there and the real political um, landscape in which Nancy Pelosi is saying that impeachment will not be pursued in the House, it raises the prospect, and the Mueller report raises the prospect, that President Trump could be prosecuted for some of those potential crimes down the line. No U.S. president has ever been prosecuted for crimes after leaving office. Do you believe that President Trump could or should be the first? I guess there's always a first. Yeah. Should he be I don't first? think anyone's above the law. I don't think anyone is above the law, including a president. I support Speaker Pelosi's decisions that she's making in the, in the House of Representatives right now as Speaker. I think she knows more about the decision as to whether to impeach the president than any of the 2020 candidates combined. Conceded. So, but I do, think, I do think that no one's above the law, and this president, who is lawless, should not be above the law. But I will tell you, Rachel, the one thing when you're out doing as much campaigning as I've done, 400 events, all 99 counties in Iowa, this is not the number one issue the American people ask us about. It's not. They want to know what we're going to do for health care, how we're going to lower pharmaceutical prices, how we're going to build infrastructure, what we're going to do to create jobs in their communities. You know, last year in our country, 80% of the money for startup businesses went to 50 counties in this country. There's over 3,000 counties in this country. That's what they care about. They care about what's going on in the public schools. They care about what's going on with jobs in their communities, with their pay, with their health care, with infrastructure. These are the issues, these kind of kitchen table pocketbook issues are actually what Americans care about. They, they never ask about the Congressman, thank you. Your time's they never ask about it. They want to know how up. we're going to solve I these problems. Time, Here's the thing. I still, Senator, I, we got we let the Republicans run our elections. We got to. And if we do not do something about Russian interference in the election, and we let Mitch okay. McConnell stop all the backup paper ballots, then we're not yep. going to get what we want all right, to I, do. I, I got to sneak in. A, we we blew through a break, which was good news to give you more time, so I got to sneak one in now. More of this debate picking up here. It continues right after this. Don't miss night two of the Democratic debate as 10 more candidates battle it out tomorrow at 9 Eastern on NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo. Each candidate has 45 seconds. We want to begin with former Congressman Delaney. Uh, closing now? Closing. Okay, 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> we can make, we can go on. <laughs> Together we are on a mission. We're on a mission to find the America that's been lost. Lost through infighting. Lost through inaction. We're so much better than this. We're a country that used to do things. We saved the world. We created the American dream for millions of people like myself. Except for black people. 
the grandson of immigrants, the son of a union electrician who went on to become a successful business leader and create thousands of jobs. But we did these things with real solutions, not with impossible promises. And those are the roots that we have to get back to. I'm running for president to solve these problems, to build infrastructure, to fix our broken health care system, to invest in communities that have been left behind, to improve public education. I just don't want to be your president to be your president. I want to be your president to do the job. This is not about me. This is about getting America working again. Thank you. Mayor de Blasio. Mayor, your closing statement. It matters. It matters in this fight for the heart and soul of our party that we nominate a candidate who has seen the face of poverty and didn't just talk about it, but gave people $15 minimum wage. It matters that we nominate a candidate who saw the destruction wrought by a broken health care system and gave people universal health care. It matters that we choose someone who saw the wasted potential of our children denied pre-K and gave it to every single one of them for free. These things really matter. And these are the things that I've done in New York, and I want to do the same for this whole country. Because putting working people first, it matters. We need to be that party again. Let's work together. With your help, we can put working people first again in America. Thank you, Mayor de Blasio. Right on time. Governor Inslee, 45 seconds. Trudy and I have three grandchildren. We love them all. And when I was thinking about whether to run for president, I made a decision. I decided that on my last on earth, I wanted to look them in the eye and tell them I did everything humanly possible to protect them from the ravages of the climate crisis. And I know to a moral certainty, if we do not have the next president who commits to this as the top priority, it won't get done. And I am the only candidate, frankly, I'm surprised. I'm the only candidate who's made this commitment to make it the top priority. If you join me in that recognition of how important this is, we can have a unified national mission. We can save ourselves. We can save our children. We can save our grandchildren. And we can save literally the life on this planet. This is our moment. Governor, thank you. Congressman Ryan, you're 45 seconds. There's nothing worse than not being heard. Nothing worse than not being seen. And I know that because I've represented for 17 years in Congress a forgotten community. They've tried to divide us who's white, who's black, who's gay, who's straight, who's a man, who's a woman. And they ran away with all the gold because they divided the working class. It's time for us to come together. I don't know how you feel, but I'm ready to play some offense. I come from the middle of industrial America, but these problems are all over our country. There's a tent city in LA, there's homeless people and people around our country who can't afford a home. It's time for us to get back on track. The teacher in Texas, the nurse in New Hampshire, the waitress in Wisconsin, all of us coming. So yeah, I'm just really going to pass over the topic of black people and reparations, I see. All right, Democrats, keep it up. Together, playing offense with an agenda that lifts everybody up. Thank I will only promise you one thing. When I walk into that Oval Office every morning, you will not be forgotten. Thank Your you, voice will be heard. Thank you. Congressman Gabbard, you have 45 seconds here closing. Now, our nation was founded on the principles of 
service above self. People who fled kings who literally prospered on the backs and the sacrifices of people. Coming here to this country, instead putting in place a government that is of, by, and for the people. But that's not what we have. Instead, we have a government that is of, by, and for the rich and powerful. This must end. As president, our White House, our White House will be a beacon of light, providing hope and opportunity, ushering in a new century where every single person will be able to get the health care they need, where we will have clean air to breathe and clean water to drink, where we will have good paying jobs in a new green economy. Join me in ushering in this new century with peace, prosperity, opportunity, and justice for all. Congresswoman, thank you. Secretary Castro, you have 45 seconds, sir. Yes, uh, me llamo Julian Castro y estoy postulando por presidente de los Estados Unidos. The very fact that I can say that tonight shows the progress that we have made in this country. Like many of you, I know the promise of America. My grandmother came here when she was seven years old as an immigrant from Mexico. And just two generations later, one of her grandsons is serving in the United States Congress and the other one is running for president of the United States. If I'm elected president, I will work hard every single day so that you and your family can get good health care, your child can get a good education, and that you can have good job opportunities, whether you live in a big city or a small town. And on January 20th, 2021, we'll say adios to Donald Trump. Senator Kovachai, the floor is yours. Three things to know about me. First, I listen to people, and that's how I get things done. That is my focus. I have a track record of passing over 100 bills where I'm the lead Democrat, and that is because I listened and I acted. And I think that's important in a president. Everything else just melts away. Secondly, I'm someone that can win and beat Donald Trump. I have won every place, every race, and every time. I have won in the reddest of districts, ones that Donald Trump won by over 20 points. I can win in states like Wisconsin and Iowa and in Michigan. And finally, yeah, I am not the establishment party candidate. I've got respect, but I'm not that person. I am the one that doesn't have a political machine that doesn't come from money. And I don't make all the promises that everyone up here makes, but I can promise you this. I am going to govern with integrity. I'm going to have your back, and I'm going to govern for you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Fifty years ago this month, my family moved into the town I grew up in because after being denied a house because of the color of their skin, it was activists, mostly white activists, that stood up and fought for them. That's the best of who we are as America. And why would I got out of law school? I moved into the inner city of Newark to fight as a tenant lawyer for other people's rights. I've taken on bullies and beat them. I've taken on tough fights and we've won. And we win those fights, not by showing the worst of who we are, but rising to who's best. Donald Trump wants us to fight him on his turf and his terms. We will beat him. I will beat him by calling this country to a sense of common purpose again. This is a referendum on him and getting rid of him, but it's also a referendum on us, who we are and who we must be to each other. It's time we win this election. And the way I'll govern is by showing the best of who we are, because that's what this country needs Senator, and deserves. Thank you. Congressman O'Rourke. 45 seconds. Our daughter Molly turned 11 this week. I'm on this stage for her, for children across this country, including some her same age who've been separated from their parents and are sleeping on concrete floors under aluminum blankets 
tonight. We're going to be there for them. We're going to confront the challenges that we face. We can't return to the same old approach. We're going to need a new kind of politics, one directed by the urgency of the next generation. And some also for reparations. I'm going to need some policies passed for reparations. Come on now, Mr. O'Rourke. Those climate activists who are fighting not just for their future, but for everyone's. Those students marching not just for their lives, but for all of ours. We'll need a movement like the one that we led in Texas. It renewed our democracy by bringing everyone in and writing nobody off. That's how we beat Donald Trump. That's how we bring this great country together again. Join us. This is our moment, and the generations that follow are counting on us to meet it. Thank you, Congressman. Senator Warren, you have 45 seconds for the final, final statement of the evening. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here. Never in a million years did I think I would stand on a stage like this. I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I have three older brothers. They all joined the military. It's a long debate. I had a dream growing up. And they ain't even brought up reparations yet. I can't believe y'all Democrats. Am I just overlooking the black people? Okay, we see how y'all live. Dream was to be a public school teacher. By the time I graduated from high school, my family, my family didn't have the money for a college application, much less a chance for me to go to college. But I got my chance. It was a $50 a semester commuter college. That was a little slice of government that created some opportunity for a girl. And it opened my life. I am in this fight because I believe that we can make our government, we can make our economy, we can make our country work, not just for those at the top, we can make it work for everyone, and I promise you this, I will fight for you as hard as I fight for my own family. tonight and that will do it for night one of this two-night event and guess what we've got 10 more candidates tomorrow night we certainly hope you will join us then but for now that concludes our coverage of this first democratic debate from miami for savannah jose chuck and rachel i'm lester holt have a good night everyone Good evening, everyone. I'm Morgan Radford, and welcome to special post-debate coverage of the first Democratic debate of the 2020 election cycle right here on NBC News Now. Well, it's finally over. one of the first Democratic debate, and, and we've got a lot to talk about. The I top four frontrunners going into tonight were in the top five for the most airtime. That's Elizabeth on phone, Warren, but, uh, Cory Booker, Better O'Rourke, and Amy Klobuchar. Also in the top five with Julian Castro. And not surprisingly, it was a night that was all about the issues. We heard from the candidates on things like immigration, free college, healthcare, the Iran deal, abortion, gun violence, the Supreme Court, climate change, police violence, and of course LGBTQ rights. So to break down what we saw this evening, we're bringing our